Thank you very much, Chris. I'm, I'm honored. It was an honor to be invited once a year, 18 months ago. Uh, to be asked twice is a double honor, and I appreciate it. No, I can't say I preached 170 new sermons last year. That would be an accomplishment. Now, when I was at Westminster Chapel, I had to do four a week, four new ones a week for 25 years. And I think uh, I've counted 3,250 sermons, 3,250 in 25 years. So that's how many I have to choose from. Uh, <laughs> but I've preached 170 times. I pro probably preached uh, many of them over and over again. So you should know that. I'm not as clever as he thinks. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I understand you're in your 25th year, and I couldn't help but think of John Wimber. I must have mentioned John Wimber when I was here before. I can't believe I didn't. Uh, but he had uh, some influence on me, and uh, I thank God for him. And just a few uh, weeks or months before he died, uh, when he was in London, he came to see me, spent two hours uh, with me. It wasn't the first time we met. He actually flied Louise and me to Los Angeles uh, back in 1991. And uh, we spent two or three days there, and I met him, spent an afternoon with him, and then he introduced me uh, to... Uh, one of the prophetic persons there uh, who became and still is a very close friend. And uh, I uh, think about the things that have happened as a result of meeting John Wimber. And uh, on the day he died, uh, that morning at Westminster Chapel, we sang two of his hymns in respect of, of, of John. I've uh, preached in the Mother Church twice, and Carol Wimber uh, was there both times and kindly came back uh, to see me because I had uh, met her and John uh, at the Rembrandt Hotel, for, had me there for dinner uh, some years before. But I just want to say that word, how much I appreciated the memory of John Wimber, and I'm just certain that if he could uh, look down from heaven and see you now, he'd be very proud. And you've done him proud. Well, I have prayed a lot about this service. And wanting to be led. And uh, what I believe I am to speak on, I want, it's, it's a vast subject, but I, I am praying to be so simple. I want to talk about the theme of inheritance whether this is old hat to you or new, I don't know. And I have wrestled whether to use uh, Romans 4 uh, as the place that I launch from, or the book of Ephesians, or the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, because it's all there. For you that will regard this as something innovative, uh, I want to make it so clear that when you do see it, and you start reading the parables and all these passages, you'll say, well, it's everywhere you look. Uh, when you see a truth that you hadn't seen before, you realize, how could I not have seen it? Now, 
Let's, let's deal with some verses in Hebrews. Would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4? Hebrews chapter 4, and I will read uh, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of Need. I turn to chapter 6, a page or, or, or two over, and I want to read verse 9. Hebrews 6, verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, what did he say? Well, he had just warned about those who had been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, who fell away could not be renewed again unto repentance. And it's, a, it's one of the scariest passages in all holy writ. And so he says in verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. Have you ever noticed that phrase before? Things that accompany salvation. You could say, it goes alongside, or you could even say, in addition to, and yet part of, and not all, come into what is promised that accompanies salvation. All right, turn now over to chapter 9, verse 15. 9, 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And then one last passage that I will read, chapter 10, Hebrews 10, verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Well, may God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching or teaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind, that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend, and upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I'll say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. I pray for an ability to be so clear and so simple that if there are those here tonight who have never heard anything about this at all, that they'll get it. 
May this be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to pick up a phrase that you heard in chapter 6, verse 9, when the writer talks about those things that accompany salvation. And he, then he referred later on in verse 10 that through faith and patience, we might inherit what has been promised. What has been promised. Same phrase in chapter 10 uh, when he says, you need to persevere so that you will, when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And in 9.15, you had the phrase, promised inheritance. Now, as I said in my prayer, I want to speak in such a way that if you've never heard this, you'll get it. And by inheritance, I do not mean getting to heaven. I do not mean salvation. I'm talking about something that is a part of salvation, but sadly, not all inherit. Everybody who is saved will go to heaven. And I'm going to use a phrase not meaning to be controversial, because I've, I've come here to be a blessing, and I'm not here to prove any doctrine. But it is my own view. Once saved, always saved. However, the fact that you are saved does not in and of itself guarantee that you receive an inheritance. All Christians are called to receive an inheritance. Some do. Some don't. All can, but not all do. Now, what is this inheritance? It is to be understood in two ways. Internally and externally. Internally, it is talking about a knowledge of God that is intimate so that the person of Jesus will be as real to you as anybody around you. Whereby the Holy Spirit, you come to know God so intimately that you would go to the stake for what you believe. That's internal inheritance. It's something that happens in your heart. What is external inheritance? That is what God does with your life. Uh, what you're called to do in life it has to do with your gifting, open doors, how God leads you. Uh, one way I could put it that you would easily understand, I could not have known when I was converted uh, 70 years ago. <laughs> That's true. I was six and a half years old. I'm 77. And I was thinking, you're a big man. You're tall. I can remember when I was almost that tall, I get shorter every year. <laughs> On my driving license says I'm five feet, 10 inches tall. I don't believe it, but it's one of those things. As I get older, I realize how good God has been to me. And 70 years ago, I was converted. I could not have known then that one day I would be a Bible teacher. 
I couldn't have known that one day I would be the minister of Westminster Chapel. And now I would have an international ministry, and I'd preach all over the world. I'm still going pretty strong. This is my external inheritance. And so God has an external inheritance for everyone here. And you need to know that he chooses it for you. In fact, it's put like this in Psalm 47, verse 5. I'll just read it to you. Psalm 47, verse 5. Sorry, it's verse 4. Verse 4. Psalm 47, 4. He chose our inheritance for us. Now, a way of understanding that is when the 12 tribes came in to the promised land, and each had an inheritance. And part of that was a geographical inheritance. And each tribe was told where they would live. And they determined it by casting lots. Doesn't sound like a very spiritual thing to do, but that's the way they did it. And so you accepted it. If you were of the tribe of Ephraim, the lot was cast, here's where you're going to live. If you're of the tribe of Judah, you're going to live over here. If you're of the tribe of Dan, up here in the north part of Israel, they could all say, well, oh, we don't like that part. We were hoping that we could be down uh, near Hebron. Sorry. The inheritance was determined by the casting of lots. David, the psalmist, could say, the boundary lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Fallen. David realized that all that happened to him, God did it. He had nothing to do with it. God did it. And then he could say, I have a delightful inheritance. But the cynic might say, well, David, you would say that, wouldn't you? You're king. <laughs> Who wouldn't say that? You're born to royalty or you're born to privilege, and you say, I have a delightful inheritance. I'll never have an inheritance like that. Listen to me. If you come into your internal inheritance, and that must always precede the external, don't ask, how am I going to spend my life? Don't ask, will I get married? Don't ask, will I go through university? Don't ask, will I get to live in this part of London? Don't ask, will I have a beautiful home? Don't ask, how much money will I have? Ask, how can I please the Lord? By keeping my eyes on Jesus and making him my focus. And once you come into your internal inheritance, I promise you, you will not complain about your external inheritance. You will be as happy as you could be. And you would not even want to trade places with David. Now, until this internal inheritance comes to us, it's easy to say, oh, I wish I were so-and-so. I wish I had his anointing, his gifting. And you remember when Jesus said to Peter in John 21 how he's going to die, and his arms will be outstretched, and he lived the way he wanted to, but when he gets old, it's going to be out of your hands, and this is the way you're going to die. Peter immediately wanted to know, what about John? What's going to happen to John? And Jesus said in so many words, shut up. That is none of your business. What if I let him live until I come back? And so Peter was put in his place. 
But you see, he was still in that carnal mode, thinking, well, if this is going to happen to me, what's going to happen to somebody else? And we must never do that. How do you get your inheritance? That is what I want to speak about tonight. And these Hebrew Christians were a discouraged lot. They were very discouraged. The proof of that is what I just read, 1035. Do not throw away your confidence. Uh, don't give up. It will be richly rewarded. They were discouraged. You see, right through the epistle, he's talking to discouraged Christians. Why were they discouraged? Well, partly because uh, their numbers were less. This is why he has to say in chapter 10, verse 25, uh, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Uh, there were, uh, they were so discouraged because numbers were dwindling. Here were Hebrew Christians that at one time were so excited they met together, but for some reason, instead of numbers increasing, they were going down. And we all know it's discouraging when you come to church and there are not many there. And you go to church and the people that were there last week aren't there anymore. And three weeks later, another family stopped coming. And it just has an effect upon you. And that was happening. Another reason they were discouraged, apparently there had been a diminishing of signs and wonders and miracles. You see, the church was born uh, in the miraculous. And so in chapter 2, uh, he talks about this. He, he said that this gospel was uh, testified to by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Uh, but for some reason, uh, they seem to have diminished somewhat. And that can be discouraging, especially if you were around to have seen extraordinary things. Uh, a new generation comes up and hears about amazing things. Uh, imagine interviewing somebody who had been present on the day of Pentecost. And you say, well, what was it like? The sound of the rushing mighty wind, of the cloven tongues of fire on each head, Tell me about that. What, what was it like? And, and, and there was such power. And Peter preached and 3,000 converted. And uh, days later, they have a prayer meeting. The place is shaken. Uh, get into Peter's shadow. You're healed. Light of the Holy Spirit struck dead. Such power. And if you don't see that anymore, it can be discouraging. Another reason they were discouraged Vindication had been withheld from them. Now, these Hebrew Christians were the laughing stock of their fellow Jews. You see, if you were converted on the day of Pentecost and there were 3,000 around you, uh, that, that's, that's fun. That's good. You feel like you're a part of something new. It's going to get bigger and better. And uh, uh, you are on the cutting edge. You are going to see something great. You haven't seen anything yet, they were saying to everybody. But you know what? After some time, there weren't many Jews being converted after all. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, there were many nationalities there that 
represented, uh, were represented from all over the Greco-Roman world, and when they were converted, they go back to their own places. That is possibly how the Church of Rome was founded. There was no apostle in Rome, but there were people from Rome on the day of Pentecost. They go back converted. Some even think that the epistle to the Hebrews was addressed to Christians in Rome. We don't know that for sure. The point is, there were those who had seen the miraculous, and uh, you're not seeing it anymore, and they had been saying to their Jewish friends, we've got it right. And the reply was, prove to me that you've got it right. Well, they said, uh, mm, oh, oh. Jesus said that the, this, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed in this generation. Not one stone will be left on another. And they said, the temple is going to fall. Really? Yes. Yes. It will fall. You will see. Well, now, we're in the 60s. This epistle was probably written before 65 AD. And so you're in the 60s. 30 years after Jesus has died on the cross and gone to heaven, and the fellow Jews say, well, the temple's still standing, isn't it? Hmm. Why should we believe you? It's still standing. And if there was Ichabod written over the temple, you could have fooled them because they were still going in having their sacrificial system. You see, well, whatever happened to the veil of the temple that was rent in two from top to bottom? Well, the next day, they just got another one, or somebody sewed it up. They went right back to business as usual. No hint, no hint by what was going on in the temple that God was unhappy. And so for years, these Jews were saying, well, it's going to come down. Now, 30, 35 years later, it's still standing. Vindication has been withheld from them. It can be so painful when you're wanting vindication, especially from those close to you. I was saying to the group yesterday, this comes to my mind, maybe I should repeat just a little of it. Uh, back in 1956, I had some visions. I had a supernatural experience with the Lord some months before, and I had 10 or 12 visions. I don't have them now. wish I did, but I did then. They were real. And one or two of them indicated that one day I would have a ministry that would go around the world. My father was so unhappy with me. I had left my old denomination. He was convinced that I had broken with God. I said, Dad, I have not broken with God. I'm closer to God than I've ever been in my life. He said, prove it. Why should I believe you? Well, I wrecked my brain. Uh, and I remember the visions, and I did something I shouldn't have done. But I said, uh, here's what's going to happen. And I described something in some detail, and it, uh, a part of the vision being that I would have a worldwide ministry, international ministry. He said, when? Uh, one year from now. Okay, would you put that in writing? Yeah. He got out a sheet of paper, brought it in, wrote it out. I.R.T. Kendall will from this day have an international ministry one year from now. 
I signed it. Easiest thing I ever did. I actually thought it would happen in three months. If you ever had a vision, it's so real, you think it's going to happen tomorrow. A year later, I wasn't even in the ministry. <laughs> Five years later, I was working as a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. While my fellow students at Trevecca College in Nashville were out pastoring churches, they all said, what's R.T. doing? Hello, I'm R.T. Kendall. I've come to show you something new and different for your home. <laughs> it was so humbling. They didn't know. I did my best to put a smile on my face. Uh, and uh, awful days. And now my dad was totally convinced that his son was out of the will of God. And I wanted vindication so much. That was in 1956. 22 years later, on a train coming from Edinburgh to King's Cross, London, my dad, who'd come to see me, looked at me and said, son, I'm proud of you. You were right. I was wrong. But I waited 22 years for that. And so when you're those closest to you sincerely don't understand and they're looking for some reason to believe in you. And perhaps you feel that way here, a part of, of this fellowship, because you're, you're outside the camp, so to speak. And I'm sure you've got friends who say, you go there? Oh, really? And it's a certain stigma. And, and we all love for some kind of affirmation. Well, as it turned out, in 70 A.D., some think it was 68, between 68 and 70, the temple did come down. And Josephus tells that not one stone was on another because they took the gold that was in between each brick. And vindication finally came. Some of them may not have been around, and some of them may have given up because there were those who just said, think we've made a mistake, and they stopped going to church. People like that, and sadly, there are a lot like that, don't come into their inheritance. They never know what might have been, but they feel like God has turned against them, and things aren't happening for them, and uh, they just can't cope anymore. I look back on my 25 years in London. If I were to ask you to guess what was the number one question I got in the vestry over 25 years? You think you could guess what it is? Chris, you think you know? Or maybe if I ask you, what's the question you most often get when people come to see you? Do you know the number one question I got in 25 years? It was not. What happens to the heathen that don't hear the gospel? Wasn't that? It was not. Why does God allow evil and suffering? Number one question, Dr. Kendall, why can't I find a husband? <laughs> why can't I get married? I never will forget one Sunday night, I promise, man came in, says, please pray for me that I'll find a wife. I did. 
Soon as he left, next person to come in, a woman came in, please pray for me that I can find a husband. I said, wait a minute, let me go back. <laughs> I... My most difficult case, my most difficult case in 25 years and maybe the whole of my ministry was a German young lady in her late 30s who had a speech impediment. She was from Germany and had muscular dystrophy. She wasn't beautiful. And she would come in almost every week. And before she would leave, here it came. Dr. Kendall, why can't I find a husband? And I would look at her and say, I don't know. I don't know. A year after we retired, I got a letter that she had moved back to Germany and took her own life. She couldn't cope. You see, Hebrews ends up with chapter 11, doesn't end up, but toward the end, you have the 11th chapter of Hebrews. They all had in common, these men, women of faith, they broke the betrayal barrier. It's when you come up against a wall and God isn't there. And you think, what is going on? Yesterday he was so real to me. He's not real to me now. I can't prove this, but I would say in my pastoral experience, nine out of ten, when they come up against that kind of thing, they just say, well, God, goodbye. I'm out of here. They can't take that. Do you know the two greatest men in the Old Testament were Abraham and Moses. The two men who suffered the most in the Old Testament, you look at the details, Abraham and Moses. And so, you look at the 11th chapter of Hebrews. They all had one thing in common. They broke the betrayal barrier. It was a great feat in aeronautical science in the 20th century when they broke the sound barrier, when a plane could fly faster than the speed of sound. But to break the betrayal barrier is when you come up against a wall and God hides his face and you just think, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. I reckon, Chris, one out of ten, maybe one out of a hundred, when they have it that hard, break the betrayal barrier and press on and say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I'm just not going to give up. I will never, ever, ever give up. And the interesting thing is, have you ever noticed this in Hebrews 11? It says in verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Well, were they dumb? Why'd they stare, stay with it? In fact, 
in Acts chapter 7, verse 5, Stephen, before the council, says Abraham was promised an inheritance in the land of Canaan, but didn't get a foot of it, not even a foot of ground. In fact, John Calvin, in his commentary, says Abraham must have realized he'd been deceived. You think, what's going on here? Let me tell you what's going on. To come into your inheritance means that by faith you refuse to give up. Colossians 2.6, as we, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we walk in Him. And I've got a suspicion that you people here, vineyard people, want as much of God as you can get. I would have thought that thing that holds vineyard together, that you just want all of God you can get. And so you're wanting a greater anointing than anything in the world. I believe that. But you see, what God does is to see if you really mean it. And He puts obstacles in your way to see how deep is your conviction. It is said of Hezekiah, the Lord left him to test him. The Lord left him to test him, to see what was in his heart. And so the writer is saying about these Hebrew Christians who went back. They gave up. It says they cannot even be renewed again to repentance. That's what it says. Doesn't mean they're not saved. You may disagree with this, and I'm not wanting to make a theological point. These people were saved, in my opinion. They were saved. They just, I think that German lady, she's in heaven right now. I believe that. Once saved, always saved. Let me tell you why it's true. Abraham was very discouraged because he was 90 and Sarah was 80 and he had no heir and he was wealthy. And he said in Genesis 15, Lord, who am I going to give all this wealth to? He said, am I to give it to Eliezer, my servant? Is that, is that who gets it? And God said, Abraham, go outside your tent. Go on out. Look up. Look up to the sky. Abraham looks up. God says, count the stars. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Let me start over here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. No. Start one more. One. Lord, there's so many. There must be hundreds. Hundreds. And we know now there are billions. But he can see hundreds. God said, so will your seed be. Abraham might have said, don't joke with me, God. I'm 90, Sarah's 80. Don't tease me like that. But you know what? Abraham believed it. He believed it. And God said, good. For that, I count you righteous. Well, Abraham might have said, well, I don't feel righteous. His wife might have looked at him and said, you don't look righteous to me. <laughs> he said, well, God says... I am, and I believe it. Now that became exhibit A 
for Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone, except he applied it to this, that God sent his son into the world. He died on a cross. The blood of Jesus turned God's wrath away. It's called propitiation. And all those who transfer the trust that they had in their good works to what Jesus had for them on the cross will go to heaven. And that's the gospel. Well, what do people sometimes say? That's nonsense. You expect me to believe that? <laughs> it's dumb. That's stupid. Don't want anything to do with that. But then there are some who say, I believe it. I believe it. I'm trusting the blood of Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven. I believe it. And God says, good. I call you righteous. You may say, oh, I don't feel righteous. And people around you say, you don't look righteous to me. But God says you are, and you believe that word. And because his righteousness is put to your credit, you're saved. You're not saved by works. It is by sheer faith alone. By the way, could I ask you a question? Do you, 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 do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, and he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Suppose we passed out sheets of paper, and you didn't know why you had them, but now imagine, go along with me. You've got a sheet of paper in front of you. I want you to write down in your mind what you would say on that sheet of paper. God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you can only give one answer. Give the wrong answer, you have to go someplace else. You don't want to go there. What would you say? And so we've given everybody plenty of time, turn them to the end of the rope, stewards come and collect them, and now I've got uh, two or three hundred sheets of paper here. Would you like to hear some of the answers? Here's one that says, I believe I'll go to heaven because I've tried to live a good life. I believe you, but that won't save you. Sorry, you're lost. Well, here's another one. I was brought up in a Christian home. Good for you. It means you had a head start. That won't save you. Here's another. I was baptized. Good. I'm sorry. If that's what you're trusting, it won't save you. Well, here's another. I was baptized by a Baptist preacher. <laughs> you, my friend, are lost as a goose. <laughs> here's another. I've kept the Ten Commandments. Well, you're a liar for one thing. Here's another. I've lived by the Sermon on the Mount. You're a bigger liar. The more space you need on that sheet of paper, worse shape you're in. Two words will do nicely. Jesus died. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so we're saved. We're going to go to heaven, not by anything we've done. It's because the righteousness of Jesus is put to your credit, and it's there. You don't lose it.
But some people that experience this for various reasons, different levels of discouragement, and they give up. I'm very aware that there are those who would say, well, that shows they never were saved. I don't believe that. Would you say that King David, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, lost his salvation? Are you going to tell me that had he died in the next few weeks, he'd have gone to hell? But fortunately, he happened to live, and Nathan the prophet came to him and exposed it, and then he repented, and that's the way he got his salvation back? No. He was saved. Had he died then, he would have lost his inheritance. The word inheritance can be used interchangeably in the New Testament or the Old with reward, prize, crown. You say, well, I don't care about a reward in heaven. You won't think that then. When you stand before God, and we all will, and give an account of the things done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5.10, you say, I don't care about a reward. Listen, the Apostle Paul so believed this. He said, I keep my body under. Some translations, I beat my body black and blue. Lest having preached to others, I myself will be disqualified for the prize. Paul wasn't worried about losing his salvation. But he sure was afraid of not having the prize. And so when you come into your inheritance here below, that is an earnest of your inheritance in heaven. And you know that you will go to heaven, but receive a reward. You see, not all who are saved will receive a reward in heaven. This is why in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about those who are on the foundation, but built a faulty superstructure made of wood, hay, straw. But some built a superstructure of gold, silver, precious stones. Picture uh, on this platform uh, a metal tray. And we have, we put on that tray gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, stubble. And we put it all together. And then we pour kerosene on it and strike a match. And it all burns up. Five minutes later, what is left? It's the gold, the silver, the precious stones. The wood, the hay, the stubble, burnt up. And Paul says, those whose superstructure is destroyed by fire will lose their reward. They will suffer loss, but will be saved. And so these Hebrew Christians, they're saved. But they blew away their inheritance. And you might like to know, just by the way, that every single verse in the New Testament that some use to say you could lose your salvation, it's talking about losing your inheritance. It's not talking about salvation at all. Not one of them. Let me just say this. My reason for preaching this not to prove any theological point, but because we come right now to what matters. Have you come into your inheritance? Don't think of the external. Don't think, how will I spend my life? 
Don't think, what kind of car will I drive? What kind of job I'll get? Ask yourself this. How important is the Holy Spirit to you? How important is it that you keep your eyes on Jesus? And if you suffer a huge trial and you're shaken, and everybody around you says, well, why don't you give up? And you just somehow say, I'm not going to give up. If Winston Churchill could say in World War II, as London was being bombarded by Germany night after night after night, week after week, month after month, we will never, 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 never give up. How much more should we who have, given, have been given the righteousness of Jesus and assurance of a home in heaven, and then along the way when we're tested... Prove how much all this means to us. And this is the way you can enter into Hebrews chapter 11 and fill it out. Because every single one of us can follow in their steps and do in our generation what they did. Not a one of them received what they wanted. Not a one of them. But they turned the world upside down in their day. The writer says the world wasn't worthy of them. And God wants to do that with you. Now, when the writer says, don't give up, don't throw away your confidence, he said, you have need of patience, you need to persevere, so that after you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. There's that phrase. You find it three times in the three scriptures that I just read, what was promised. End of chapter 6, 9.15, and now, 10, 36, you will receive what is promised. It's not talking about heaven. He's talking about coming in to an intimate relationship with the Most High God. Not only did Abraham and Moses suffer more than anybody else, they were the two men in the Old Testament that were called friends of God. Wouldn't you like to think you were a friend of God, and you are invited for just that. Now, because of time, and it, you know, I could go on for two hours, and I know you're dying for me to stay here for two hours, but I, I'm, not, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to be finished as soon as I can. The chief way to come into your inheritance is to learn how not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is the verse that lets you know that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is a sensitive person. I wrote a book called Sensitivity of the Spirit. I actually wanted to call the book The Hypersensitivity of the Spirit. Publisher talked me out of it, says no one will know what you mean by that, and I accepted that. But that's the point, that the Holy Spirit is hypersensitive. Now, when we speak of a person being very sensitive, hypersensitive, it's not a compliment. But like it or not, that's the way the Holy Spirit is. 
The word grieve, when he says grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, comes from a Greek word that means get your feelings hurt. So the Holy Spirit can get his feelings hurt. He's in us, but he can be grieved. Now there's good news and bad news. The good news is when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you don't lose your salvation. Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Nothing can be clearer than that. But what does happen is that the Holy Spirit is grieved, and when he's grieved, all of a sudden, you can't think clearly. You're irritable, grouchy, snap back at people, and they'll say, what's wrong with you? Oh, I've just had a bad day. But when the Holy Spirit is grieved in you, that means he's kind of left you to yourself for a moment. He never leaves you, but the anointing lifts. And you read your Bible, and you, you can't understand, and you, you stare at the same word, and you, you try to pray, and your mind wanders. John the Baptist said that the way he knew Jesus was the Messiah was that the dove came down on Jesus and remained. Said it twice, John 1, 31, 32. Dove came down on Jesus and remained. See, here's what happens in my case. The dove will come down, but it doesn't stay. I know what it is for the Spirit to come down and, oh my word, the peace, the joy. And the Lord is so real, and you think, oh Lord, please don't leave Oh, please don't go. Please don't go. He's so real. You think, I wish this could go on forever. But time goes on. Phone rings. You get in your car, driving down the motorway. You think, boy, what happened to me? Maybe it was when the car in front of you was going so slow, and you honk your horn, and you say, what's the matter with you? And the dove just kind of flies away. Uh, you're in Tesco's or Sainsbury's, and you're in a hurry, and the person checking out in front of you, they're going so slow, and they're counting their change, and you go, ah. Oh. You wanted them to hear you. They did. <laughs> so did the dove. He just flew away. Because the chief way we grieve the Spirit is by bitterness. As soon as Paul said, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I'll read it to you. The very next thing he says, very next verse. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You want me to tell you how to build a superstructure of wood, hay, straw? Want to know how to do it? Just let your anger go. That means run loose. Stay bitter. Don't feel bad about it. You say, well, we're all sinners, so I lost my temper. I don't care. When those things like that don't matter to you, and you're speaking evil of somebody, say, well, I'm just telling the truth. May have been true, but the dove just flies away. You know how to build a superstructure of gold, silver, precious stones. It's all in 1 Corinthians 3. Total forgiveness. 
when you're devoid of bitterness, instead of pointing the finger all the time, you don't judge. And you're building a superstructure of gold, silver, precious stones, and this is the way you come into your inheritance. And the degree to which the Holy Spirit in you is ungrieved is the degree to which the Bible becomes real. Jesus becomes real. The witness of the Holy Spirit is there, and you're wondering why your gift isn't functioning or why the Bible isn't real. You see, God won't bend the rules for any of us. I like to think, having been in the ministry for 57 years, maybe God will give me some slack. And see, you're old, you're cantankerous. But he won't. And he won't do it for you. A British couple were sent by their denomination to Israel to be missionaries. A few weeks after they moved into their home, they were given a place to live in Jerusalem and noticed that a dove had come to live in the eave of the roof of their house. They were so excited. It was like a seal of God on their being in Israel. But they noticed that every time they would slam a door, the dove would fly away. Every time they would get into an argument with each other and start shouting, the dove would fly away. And one day, Sandy said to Bernice, have you noticed the dove? Oh, yes, she said. How do you feel about the dove? Well, it's like a seal of being in Israel. Have you noticed every time we slam a door, the dove flies away? Every time we get into a shouting match with each other, the dove flies away. She said, yes, I'm so afraid that one day the dove will fly away and not come back. He looked at her and said, Either the dove adjusts to us, or we adjust to the dove. Change their lives just to keep a dove. The Holy Spirit is a thousand times more sensitive than that. And so when in Hebrews, in Romans, in Ephesians, all these talking about how to get your inheritance it comes right down to this very principle, the internal inheritance, knowing the ungrieved spirit in you. Because when the Holy Spirit is ungrieved and is there, you read the Bible and it's like gold letters leaping out at you. You come to worship, God is so real, instead of you going through the motions. The internal inheritance. All Christians can. Many don't. And one sympathizes with those who've had severe trials. My heart went out to that German girl. I wept. I didn't know what to say. And if I knew your story, I wouldn't moralize you. I wouldn't say, well, you know, I, I think I'd give up too if I were you. Oh, no. I would just say, look. It's just possible that the very thing that's putting you off God, his, his way of saying how much do you want him. 
And that's why the writer is saying to these Hebrew Christians, don't give up. Don't give up. We're persuaded better things of you. Those who have fallen away, sorry. Don't look for them again. But we're persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. Salvation is a given. But not all have that which accompanies salvation. The anointing, the blessing, and following in the steps of those in Hebrews chapter 11. As I say, God won't bend the rules for any of us. You know, when I was at Westminster Chapel, I started my Sunday morning sermon preparation, Chris, on Monday morning. I did. Westminster Chapel is a preacher's dream and a pastor's nightmare. But I did do one thing. I prepared sermons. Most churches, staff are busy seeing people, appointments, but I was blessed. And all I did is prepare sermons. People, they say, how have I written all those books? They're sermons put in print. It's not that I'm brilliant. They're just sermons. They typed them up and made them a book. But I always started my Sunday morning preparation on Monday morning. I wanted to have a lot done by Monday afternoon. But one time, it only happened once in 25 years. I was so busy that week, preaching all over Britain, I didn't even crack a book. I couldn't. There was no time. Seeing everybody all over Britain, it was now Saturday morning. Nothing for Sunday. I'd never faced it before. And I said, Lord, please, let there be no disruptions today. No phone calls. Nobody needing to see me. And please make up for the lost week. You know what it's been like. You could just please help me to get it by tonight. I'll be ever so thankful. At 9 o'clock that morning, Louise and I got into an argument. In Kentucky, we would call it a dandy. She was horrible. I slammed the door in a godly way. <laughs> Those are the days before I got spiritual. Went to my desk, my Bible, blank sheet of paper, pen. Now, Lord, give me something for tomorrow. Jesus, deal with that woman, Lord. <laughs> 10 o'clock, blank sheet of paper. Lord, please help me. 11 o'clock, nothing. 12 o'clock noon, three hours now. Blank sheet of paper. Got nowhere. 2 o'clock, I was in a panic. I was in a state of panic. Lord, please, please help me. You know that everything I say tomorrow will be tape recorded. And we'll go around the world. Now, you've got to help me. A voice faintly replied, really? <laughs> Three o'clock. Blank sheet of paper. Four o'clock. You see, 
I was waiting for her. I would define spirituality as closing the time gap between sin and repentance. How to maintain a relationship unbroken with the ungrieved spirit. It's closing the time gap between sin and repentance. For some, the time gap is years. I've known people 20 years later saying, I will never admit I was wrong. 20 years later. And then, then sometimes after 20 years, they say, well, I could have been wrong, maybe. It took 20 years to cool off. Some narrow the time gap to a few months. And they say, sorry. Some narrow the time gap to a few weeks. And they climb down. Some to a few days. Some to a few hours. In my case, time gap seven hours. Some to a few minutes. And some to a few seconds. If you can narrow the time gap to seconds, you're beginning to know his ways. And you can almost sense that if you finish that sentence, the dove will just start to fly. And you think, if I finish this sentence, the dove will fly away. Stop it! Don't say it. So that there's no discontinuity in your relationship with the Holy Spirit that's coming into your inheritance. At four o'clock, I went into the kitchen and there was Louise standing. I can remember now, standing by the refrigerator. She was tearful. I said, I'm sorry. It was all my fault. Well, she said, it wasn't all your fault. It was partly my fault. No, it was all my fault, and I am so sorry. We hugged. We kissed. I went back to the same desk, same Bible, same blank sheet of paper, I promise you. In five minutes, I began to get thoughts from everywhere. In 45 minutes, I had my whole sermon for the next day. Why? The Spirit came down. The dove came down. He won't bend the rules for any of us. You can accomplish more in five minutes when the Holy Spirit comes than in five years when you try to make things happen. How to get your inheritance. Salvation is a given. But this kind of a relationship is not automatic. It comes through perseverance and Here's what he said, and I close with this. Don't give up. After you have done the will of God, you need patience that you might receive what has been promised. When you least expect it, the Lord just kind of turns up, and there he is. He can do it in your home. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it happened to this vineyard fellowship? And when every person here, when you get together, you see the ungrieved spirit in me will recognize the ungrieved spirit in you.
And let's say that Chris and I are just having great fellowship. And uh, uh, then Aunt comes along, and, and he too, speaking to his wife, and things are good at home, and no grudge, and he, we can sense. Here's another, there's three of us, the ungrieved spirit. We're just enjoying fellowship, because we can just tell. And then here comes a fourth person from nowhere, and they immediately say, you know what's wrong with this church? Let me tell you what's going on here. And, and all of a sudden, you look at each other and think, oh, Oh, it was, but one person can kill it. Do you know what I'd love for my legacy to be to you if I never see you again? I would love somehow to erect a magnet in this place. Most churches I know want a magnet that will bring the people in. I'd like to see a magnet that will bring the spirit down. And if you bring the Spirit down, they're going to come from all over, not just from St. Albans, from all over London, from Kent, from everywhere, to say, what is going on in this place? Because we're all enjoying the ungrieved Spirit. And we, by coming into our internal inheritance, we begin to see things that God is doing in our lives and what it would do for the church. You could turn St. Albans upside down be Pentecost all over again. About 30 minutes ago, I asked you to write down on a sheet of paper your answer. Do you remember what it was? You know what you wrote. Be honest. You wrote down what you thought would get you in. I want to tell you lovingly that if you wrote anything other than trusting Jesus' death on the cross, if you wrote anything else than the equivalent of trusting his blood, his death, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But that can be sorted out. I can give you a prayer to pray. You can say it right now, not out loud. Say it in your heart. God will listen. He knows your thoughts. He knows the plans he has for you. And as for inheritance down the road, you've got to get this right first. If you put the wrong answer down, that you're trusting something other than the blood of Jesus to get you to heaven, pray right now. Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it. Did you pray that prayer? Did you? Question. Are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? Why do you ask, R.T.? Because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. 
If you prayed that prayer because you put the wrong thing down on that sheet of paper, in 30 seconds from now, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. You say, in front of all these people? Yes. Ooh, that's a bit scary, and I, the people will know I needed to pray that prayer. Mm-hmm. This is your moment to show whether the honor of God means more to you than what people think. Not going to ask you to make a speech. Not going to ask you to join this church. But by standing, you'll show you're unashamed and you're confessing. Five, four, three, two, one. If you prayed that prayer, there's one. Others, remain standing. Others, stand. You prayed the prayer. Remain standing. Anyone else? They're all over the place. Remain standing. Chris, what is the procedure here? Do you want to see these people? Do you want them to meet you? Do you want them to have prayer? Or shall I let them sit down and say, see you next week? I want to do the right thing. Okay. All right. After the service, you can sit down now. You, that's great. He's in front of all these people, well done. To show you really meant it, you need to come over to this area, and you'll be told the next thing to do. One last thing. If the message tonight has convicted you and you see that you have grieved the Holy Spirit by unguarded comments, losing your temper, holding a grudge, not totally forgiving, and you're sorry. And you want the time gap as soon as you see it to be just minutes instead of days or years. If you are that person, and you would just like to let God and the angels know that you want things to be different from this day, there's a sign of repentance, and that you're not in Hebrews 6, but you are renewed because you've been given repentance now, would you, right now, stand to your feet? Anyone else? I'll just wait 10 seconds. Here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. For a minute, while we're quiet, tell God what's on your heart. You say, well, RT, he knows what's on my heart. I know that. But be like a child, as if you're informing him, giving him information, just like a child. Say, Lord, I'm sorry I grieved you like that. I shouldn't have spoken as I did. I'm sorry for that grudge I've held. For the next few seconds, just you tell him in your own words. There's good old 1 John 1, 9, written to Christians, not to the lost. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Forgive us for grieving you. Come, heavenly dove. Come down and remain like you did on Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.